Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Kevin Ness. He's the CEO of Boulder, Colorado-based Inscripta. This is a startup that calls itself, quote, the digital genome engineering company. That aspiration, which Inscripta described in a statement last December, was to create, quote, the world's first fully automated benchtop instrument for genome scale engineering, consisting of an instrument, consumables, software, and assays, it enables scientists to create libraries of millions of precisely engineered single cells in one experiment through a fully automated workflow. Wow. <laughs> Instead of reading DNA at scale with sequencers, this is about allowing scientists to write DNA at scale. The company raised $125 million in a Series D financing last December bringing its private fundraising total at the time to about $260 million. Venrock, Foresight, JS Capital Management, Oak, and Paladin Capital Group are among its backers. In this episode, I asked Kevin to speak some about his life story, his path in mechanical engineering, and how useful that background became once he started learning about the big open questions in biology. We talk more about the company in the later part of the episode. Please join me and Kevin Ness on The Long Run. Kevin Ness, welcome to The Long Run. Thank you. I really am looking forward to this. So, Kevin, I'm excited to have you on the show. You have a very ambitious and idealistic mission here at Inscripta. Uh, you sound kind of like a conscious capitalism kind of guy, and I want to get to that later in the show. But... Um, Everybody that comes on this show, I like to start with some really basic stuff about where you came from. So wh where were you uh, born and raised? That's uh, uh, going way back. Uh, so I was actually born in Canada in 1976, but I know really nothing about Canada because my parents brought me down to Southern California where I pretty much grew up my whole life when I was uh, a year and eight months old. So a lot of my friends still tease me and talk about Canada, but I really don't have any frame of reference. You don't have the it's, accent. <laughs> well, I don't know. Some of my friends occasionally will catch an A out of there and, and, <laughs> and riff on that a bit. Okay. So what did your mom and dad do uh, that brought them to Southern California? It's interesting. My, my mom's from Nova Scotia, Halifax on the East Coast. My dad is from um, British Columbia, both sides. However... My dad's family was uh, back and forth between British Columbia and Southern California and Orange County. I actually went to the same high school as my dad. So most of my aunts and uncles and grandparents are American. And just having my dad was, was born in Canada. So I, I have most of my family in the States. Okay, so they had family there. But what, um, what did your mom and dad do for a living? My mom, um, unfortunately, just uh, recently passed away. Uh, so I was reading through some of her, her self notes described, and she described herself as a mother and a clerk. She actually worked in a back office of a hospital and different retirement homes. And my dad, and I'd say mainly mother, I mean, she took care of me single, not single mom, but stay at home mom, a lovely woman, 
My dad was what's called a millwright. Um, and think of that as uh, individual large-scale construction projects, dams, turbines, and was very mechanical in nature. We lived in our garage and just, you know, uh, puttered around and built stuff and took stuff apart, a lot of tools and um, straight blue-collar, um, awesome childhood, great parents. Interesting. So he wasn't really an engineer per se, but he liked to know how stuff works and how to tear it apart, build it back up. Very much an engineering mindset. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we built a lot of cool stuff around the house. Even before I turned 16, when I was 14 and a half, my dad went and bought a 1966 Mustang. And we uh, built that thing up for about a year and a half, tore it completely down and had that as my first car when I turned 16, which was pretty awesome. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So did you find yourself that you were good with your hands or was there something else that drew you to the uh, building stuff? It's an interesting question. Um, uh, yeah, I'm good at assembling stuff. Some of my colleagues uh, tease me about the amount of stuff that I break in the lab nowadays and have over the course of my career. But if I kind of think about the one thing that potentially differentiates is I get like fixated on things. And I could just remember so many times back then with my dad, um, taking my bike apart, fully, you know, re-greasing the bearings, setting it up, taking it out, riding with my friends. And then the next day we'd go back and I dismantle the whole thing again, take it completely apart. We used to race these little things called RC 10 cars, remote controlled cars. And I would completely just take the whole thing apart, reassemble it, take it apart. And I'd get like consumed and fixated on that. I could really like zone out, go in pretty deep. And so from that point of view, I think, yeah, I'd have good hands, but it was probably more just like the concentration and fixation on a topic for extended period of time. Okay. Now what kind of student were you academically? I was actually good academically, but my teachers would probably say more in trouble a lot. Um, I had an interesting uh, experience growing up. I did all the honors classes and AP classes, but most of my friends were kind of probably more defined as the bad side of, of the crowd, skateboarders and punk rockers that I'd hang out with, uh, not as academically focused. And so I'd go in and I'd do my classes with the same group. We went from you know class to class to class, all the AP honors. But then when I hung out outside, it was like a different, um, community, but it was nice because at my school, I got to like straddle both sides of, of the fence there and did well at school. Was this a was public school in, in what neighborhood? It was in uh, Orange County in a city called La Habra, uh, La Habra High and, um, public school. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, did you, um, did you fall in love with science in those years or uh, did you have a teacher or somebody that inspired you to uh, pursue, you know, something that, that built on your interest in mechanics and engineering? Wish I had a great story there. And the answer is definitively no. I stumbled <laughs> into engineering in a pretty uh, backwards manner. But you did ask a key question, is you have a special teacher? And I definitively say yes to that question. It was a gentleman named Fred Lentz, truly a, um, uh, a unique individual that cared about people. He actually taught a psychology class and like AP history. 
and just took a deep caring about students, did something very special for me that actually got me out of that local area and going off to college, which is a whole different, different story. But specifically how I got into engineering is I had this one class where the teachers, um, the like counselors, you had to take like a, an elective. And I chose, hey, if I took this elective with the counselors, I got to basically not have to do that much work and I could walk around and meet and talk with my friends. Um, that's the type of uh, individual I was thinking at that time. But in at the moment of filling out college applications, it was perfect because they were the ones who typically helped individuals. And so I asked them, or they asked me, hey, what are you going to put? And I said, I don't know, undecided. I don't know what I really want to do. And so they asked some like leading questions. Well, what do you like? And I just blurted out, I like science, I like math. And they go, oh, yeah, like kind of like an engineer. And I said, yes. So I filled that out, submitted all the forms. And then ultimately when I got back uh, and, and got accepted to a few places, they said, oh, you want to be an engineer? And I'm like, no, I thought that's what you said. And it just so happened I went into you know college in the engineering department. I found something that I did love. But in hindsight, they said, oh, you should have kept undecided because it's harder to get accepted into the engineering departments. So it was kind of a funny back way into that um, program. Huh. Well, I think that's pretty typical for a lot of kids, you know, 17, 18, don't know what they want to be when they grow up. And, you know, if you show some aptitude for science and math, somebody, <laughs> chances are, will steer you in that direction of engineering. I, in fact, that reminds me of my own guidance yeah, counselor was, saying that to me. I didn't follow that advice, but. <laughs> um, it's so, a hard question just on this front. I know we'll probably gonna move on, but they say like, find your passion, you know, find what you love to do in life. And I've always thought that was somewhat of an unfair question because my response is until I try everything, how do I actually know what my passion is? So what I've personally just done is tried to work really hard in whatever is right in front of me at the moment. Maybe looking down too much and not looking across to potentially find something that I might have enjoyed more. But, but I think it's somewhat of a, a loaded, unfair question that like find your passion. Did you think that way as a 17 or 18 year old? Like, I, I want to sample the buffet of all kinds of interesting things and, and figure it out then? Mm, yes, I wanted to sample everything. I did try a lot, but no, it was more that, that what I said back when I got fixated on taking my bike apart, um, working on those RC10 cars, just whatever was in front of me, I just did really well. Probably one of the greatest things I remember my dad saying, kind of there's two fronts. He said, an education son, no one can ever take away from you. And like that was like burnt into my brain. And the other was no matter what you do, it doesn't matter. And he'd always say you can be a janitor, you could be the president of the United States. It doesn't truly matter. What matters is that you do your absolute best and you try really hard in what you're doing. That's a great attitude. It, it reminds me of the growth mindset. Um, but in, in any case, so you go to UC Santa Barbara. Um, what... Um, what did you sink your teeth into there at UCSB? So I actually um, uh, started in mechanical engineering, did that um, first year, took uh, some electrical engineering courses and that, and almost made the switch over in my sophomore year to electrical engineering. I decided to stay with mechanical, but I formed some connections with professors there and actually did a pretty strong overlap of electrical engineering and mechanical. So much so that at the tail end, I added on a solid state uh, physics uh, degree in uh, material science, emphasis in solid state physics, working with a lot of uh, electrical engineers doing 
high-speed photo detectors and 3.5 semiconductor wide band gap materials. It was an awesome training ground. So you got some cross-disciplinary exposure even as an undergraduate. How would you describe that environment there at UCSB? Excellent on the academic front and even more extreme on the outside lifestyle. Uh, Santa Barbara has a very unique party environment outside of the education that is somewhat overwhelming. But the education was also um, excellent. They actually have the number one materials department in the whole nation. That's why I chose to do that additional master's um, in material science because there were such great minds. And because I had this, this dual discipline where I was working with physicists and working with electrical engineers and all my internships and all my like projects outside of coursework, but I was still doing an official mechanical engineering degree, I, I kind of started to straddle and, and be at the edge of this emerging field called MEMS, uh, Microelectromechanical Systems which was kind of using semiconductor equipment, photolithographic equipment that that literally make, you know, the Pentium chip and transistors. Um, But carving up silicon uh, in micro and nanoscale structures to to make sensors and actuators, objects. And I found that as a perfect way to kind of leverage this electrical engineering, material science, solid physics, um, practical work that I was doing, but also the academic work of mechanical engineering. And this is where biology actually came into my life because I had this unique background, but the problems that I wanted to choose to apply it to, you know, did I want to make a pressure sensor uh, or an accelerometer to, you know, to measure um, something more standard, or do I use this unique ability to make small structures and apply it to measuring biology? And that right there is what felt correct and I just sprinted forward in. So biomems became my my focus and ultimately what I built a whole PhD around. How did um how, how did biology come on your radar screen? Now this would have been mid to late nineties, I guess you were coming up. So I don't know, was the human genome project in the news or, yeah, or graduated high school ninety five, school ninety nine uh, was my first undergrad, did the masters in, in two thousand time frame. And I got to work with one of the lead uh, people in the field, uh, Kimberly Turner and Noel McDonald, um, who, uh, Noel McDonald, one of the key fathers of this MEM uh, space, came from Cornell over to Santa Barbara. And we started making an ultra-sensitive mass detector to detect biological entities and different kind of chemical agents using this MEMS technology. But what was it about biology that... Um that made you drawn to that as the problem space? It's a great great question. I'd probably answer from like two angles. The global principles, just it's fascinating. Like what is life? You and I talking right here, you study in science these, you know, quantum mechanics and these, these physical things and atoms and mass. And yet there's also this element that is just life. Um, that is made up of those molecules and atoms and mass and proteins. I, I just find that interesting and fascinating and can can spend myself, find myself daydreaming many times within that area. So it just caught my attention. Plus, multiple times when I was reading biology books and taking some biology courseworks, it, it sounds weird, but I get myself caught in this like infinite loop where we 
um, be reading about a particular protein or reaction and my finger right there, which has this protein in it, um, I see and I would catch this thought like, wow, I'm actually reading about myself and trying to study the, the underlying molecular mechanisms that are happening within who I am. And this like weird thought process would just connect. And I just found it fascinating at that time, an interesting topic. And I know we're going to get to Inscripta later, but it's kind of come full circle to where now I'm excited that happened because you can use this important, amazing space that is biology to actually start to do some real world problem solving across, you know, important issues that are facing our society. Okay. So you go to, you go to graduate school at, um, at Stanford um, and, and what was your, um, your thesis about what was kind of your, your driving mandate there? Yeah. So I had this desire to do biology. I had MEMS as a, a, a capability where I could carve up silicon with all the work and technologies that I've learned working in a clean room to make these electronic devices. And I had a unique skill set, and I was going to apply that to biology. And I just immediately hit head on. Anytime you're working in a biology environment, you're working in an aqueous environment. So I needed to start to also learn micro scale engineering with like fluid mechanics intertwined, which became kind of the whole space of microfluidics. So I got to work with three amazing professors at Stanford. My official uh, thesis advisor was Ken Goodson, the department chair of mechanical engineering, and then Tom Kenny on like the mechatronics, mechanical engineering side. And then Juan Santiago was one of the world leaders in microfluidics. And those three professors worked really well together and their groups worked really well together. And I got put in that area. And I just said from the beginning, I wanna do biology. And so ultimately I worked on the, the official thesis title was microfluidic technologies for biological sample preparation. So a variety of different microfluidic techniques that are always focused on manipulating and preparing a biological sample so that you would do something with it. And usually you would detect it. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I also worked at a place called Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And the work that I was doing there at the exact same time, I was a full-time student at Stanford, so it was crazy busy. Full-time wow. employee, I mean, also full-time. Wh why did student. you do that? Were you using that to like partly pay your way through school? Well, I got a full ride, so so no. Um, the money was definitely better than being a straight grad student, but I think it's more just overachiever. I enjoyed a lot of the problems that we were solved. So they tried to hire, I did an internship when I was back at Santa Barbara in between my senior and uh, master's year at Livermore. They tried to hire me. I kind of accepted that at the exact same time that I said I was going to go do my PhD. And they said, hey, let's try to do both to kind of keep me there. And it actually worked out because I tried to tailor some of my PhD projects to some of the core research elements that some of the detection programs at Livermore needed. And so it was a, um, a wonderfully busy time, but a wonderful experience. So, so I guess in these years, somewhere in there, you must have, you know, hit upon this, this issue that um, detecting uh, certain things, specific things in messy samples 
is hard. <laughs> and um, it was a pretty slow manual kind of process with the tools of the time. Yes. And, and I love the word you said, messy samples right there. That, that right there is the Achilles heel of the entire detection paradigm. Detecting the molecules is actually not that hard. That's what I learned at Livermore. There are a variety of amazing techniques that we as a society have mastered to monitor a specific biomolecule, whether it be DNA, RNA, pro RNA protein, lipid, measuring a cell. The challenge is typically the sample is messy, and how do you get from the real world that messy sample, the analyte you're trying to measure, actually to the detection volume? So translating it from the way you collect the sample to the way that the, the detector that pretty much is already made, it's sensitive enough, it can read the molecule. But that translation from real sample to actually in the right state that is compatible with the detector volume, that's where the gaps existed. And it was lucky that microfluidics is a wonderful technique to do a lot of sample preparation to manipulate the sample to get it ready for detection. Okay, so you work on this uh, at Livermore, and it uh, informs your uh, your PhD work there at, at Stanford. Um, and you know, Stanford being an entrepreneurial place, were, were, was that kind of in the air? Were, were your advisors pointing you in that direction, or how did you end up um, going to work at a startup, which would have been Quanta Life? Yeah, so um, no, the advisors uh, didn't. Uh, uh, yes, it was in the air, and no, my advisors didn't really push me to start companies. They actually started it themselves. So the tail end of my uh, PhD, my professor took one year off to go start his own company. I actually went to that company a few times to you know have specific meetings. So I got to see it, and I saw how exciting it was. And because I had this um, this uh, like full ride there, I got to take as many classes as I wanted. And so I took extra classes in the GSB, Stanford's grad, graduate school business, because I just wanted to learn on those topics. So I had some, some academic training, had some desire to, to do companies. But honestly, Livermore was so exciting um, that when I finished my PhD and kept working there, I was kind of, again, just fo fixated on what's right in front of me, working really hard. We had developed some exquisite measurement technology, some of the most precise ways to uh, monitor um, uh, pathogens, really. So, so the main focus of Livermore was biological sample preparation for like non-proliferation um, you know, biosecurity detection activities, real, real world events like the president's inauguration, Super Bowl, the Olympics, uh, technologies and programs that I was exposed to at Livermore were like deployed to. So, so really exciting. And uh, about 2008, a key mentor that I had, the person who ran the entire ChemBio program at Lawrence Livermore, a gentleman named Bill Colston, um, said, you know, hey, let's jump out and start a company and use some of the technology that we developed at Livermore to, um, which could measure things more precisely than any other way. Let's, instead of focusing this on measuring some biosecurity threat, let's look at important uh, DNA molecules that need to be measured in therapeutics or diagnostic in the healthcare sector. 
So in 2008, we jumped out and started Quantalife, licensed some key IP from Livermore. They were very supportive of helping facilitate this, this early company. And then we did this about three months right before the 2008 just crash of the market. <laughs> Great time to start a company, right? <laughs> yeah. We, uh, you know, if you take yourself back to that time, potentially somewhat relevant to the issues, you know, right now with the current um, market volatility that we're under. But, but back then, people were talking about the Great Depression number two. And we looked at ourselves going, oh, my gosh, we just quit our jobs with the most stable company you could ever be at, the U.S. government. And had to go fundraise when really a lot of VCs were just hemorrhaging dollars, wouldn't even take your meeting and calls, you know, funneling those dollars right back in their existing portfolio company. But it really was the strength of the team, the technology, and just our grit to like will this thing forward that we got it funded and began the rise, which was a company called Quantalife that worked on um, developing really first droplet digital PCR systems. Uh-huh. And that company was eventually, after a few years, acquired by BioRad. So the first yep, entrepreneurial go-round did pretty well. Yes. Um, we were fixated on success. We worked our butts off there, and it was an awesome team and experience that we assembled definitely had major ups and downs but it was genuinely one of those companies that was up and to the right did the seed round the a b about to do a series uh, c got an unsolicited offer went and brought the wall street banks involved the ubs did a bidding process and we had pretty much some of the um, top strategic investors that are in the tools place all vying for the company and at the end of that in um October 4th, 2011, BioRed ultimately uh, purchased the technology. Okay. Now, at Quantalife, that's where you met, is that where you met Serge Saxonoff and Ben Heinsohn? No, it actually goes back even uh, sooner in my life. Uh, ben Heinsohn, I met at Livermore. He took a postdoc. He does PhD in Australia in uh, chemistry, one of the best chemists I've ever worked with in my life. I uh, came over, I think he was there about 2003 when I would have met him. And Serge and I go back to around 2000 when I first started at Stanford. He was actually my roommate there. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, yeah. small world. <laughs> um, Very small world. Um, so that's where I actually got to see Serge is a wonderful entrepreneur. He helped start the founding uh, R&D architect for 23andMe. And I got to see the formation of 23andMe before the world knew about it when he was doing his PhD in his bioinformatics program at Stanford when we were roommates. So okay, we okay. But then you guys did long. reunite at Quantalife. We did. For about a year and a half, I tried to get him to jump from 23andMe to come over to Quantalife. See, going back to I'm an engineer and I have committed my life to building tools for biologists. And as an engineer, you know, I'm not the user of this tool. I can, I can make it, but I can't apply it to the key cutting-edge problems within biology. That's just not my subject area expertise. So I need to surround myself with the thought leaders and the people at the edge of genomics. And that was Surge. So I tried for a year and a half, and Bill and I tried to get him to, to jump. And finally, as Surge started seeing that technology mature, and we could start to make measurements that no other platform could in the world. He decided to leave 23andMe 
to come over to help run applications at Quantalife. That's a really good sign of self-awareness, by the way, that not isn't present in all engineers, you know, who sometimes fall uh, into that trap of, well, let's make this cool tool. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and it becomes like a solution in search of a problem. It's not really informed by what the questions the users really want to answer. And so this is where putting together the team is really important. Absolutely. And some of that, I think, goes back to Livermore, where I did try to push some of my, some of my exotic, fancy microfluidic technologies that I was working on at Stanford into some of the field-deployed systems that had to be working you know, field-hardened. And usually that complicated stuff that's in academic publication that you can get to work once just falls flat on its face when you try to translate it into like a real world situation. So the the Livermore experience, I think, really um, beat into me not push technology. So so you and Serge and Ben, Ben's the chemist, Serge is bioinformatics and biology, and you're a um, mechanical engineer, uh, microfluidics, all that stuff. Um, you, you have a good experience there at Quantalife, um, and then you think, what's next? How did this come together for you guys to start 10X Genomics? Yeah, so we all um, were at BioRad for different periods of time. Like I said, they, they bought it in 2011. Ben and Sturge stayed for a few months. I stayed for about a year helping harden and, and transfer the system to manufacturing. And really, I just... I like building things, um, taking early ideas and, and, and creating stuff. Okay. And so I saw staying at BioRad in what was called the Digital Biology Center, a lot of that focus was going to be continuing to harden and uh, push the digital PCR platform into the marketplace. It was not as much like creation of, of, of new stuff at the rate that I know I can and the teams that we've assembled in the past can. So in a way, we decided to get the band back together and we somewhat went to the same uh, playbook that I know I've been working on since Livermore, which is to take the digitization of biology as a starting point where instead of processing the sample in bulk, like because they're messy, what if you break it into little tiny partitions and somewhat um, make the detection easier by taking that complex sample where everything's intermixed and you can have cross reactions to take over your sample and spoil it. If you digitize the sample, put in these little partitions, a lot of benefits happen. Now, it wasn't quite single cell level of resolution in the beginning, was it? No, at this, at this point... At Livermore, we applied it for you know, detecting a variety of things. Uh, Quantalife kind of used this digital principle to improve PCR. At 10X, we had this simple focus at the beginning. Let's use digital thinking to improve the sequencer. It was as simple as that. And then getting clear focus of what's essential and what's needed, we said, well, what does the sequencer need? It needs single molecule resolution and it needs single cell resolution. So as we started 10X in 2012, we actually did that out of my garage for the first five months, which is its own thing we can talk about literally doing a garage startup. Like having people come to your house to work on the first day is actually pretty awkward. Classic Silicon Valley story. 
But we were focused on improving the sequencer, single cell, single molecule resolution. And then we started the crank of coming up with what's the right architecture that could deliver that in a system that supports the customer needs, that can be manufactured, that could be service supported, and actually went through a few generations of, of um, approaches until we came up with the winning solution that ultimately became this uh, gem, gels in emulsion technology that is at the basis of what is 10x's platform today if you like listening to the long run podcast you'll love reading timmerman report this is where you'll gain a deep contextual understanding of biotech from my writing and from an outstanding cast of contributing writers who i edit it's 149 dollars a year for an individual to subscribe 10% discounts are available for groups with five or more readers. This is the best way to support the kind of quality, independent biotech journalism that I produce. I appreciate your support. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to show your support today. 10X has been a big success story, went public last year. Um, people can look at it on the NASDAQ now. Um, I'm sure you're happy and proud of that. Very proud. But you, um, by about 2016, um, that's when you came, uh, Inscripta came to your attention or they came to you. Tell me, how, how did that happen? Yeah, it's interesting. This is not by design, but if you look back, Quantalife was 2008 to 2012. 10x of 2012 to 2016. It's almost like a four-year cadence for, for me. You get a little restless. <laughs> I get a little restless. I like I like I like building stuff. And the the simplicity of thought can be applied here. Uh, digitizing PCR to improve that tool for biologists, Quantalife, digitizing the sequencer, um, 10x genomics, and Scripta is now jumping to the thinking of how can we uh, apply digital thinking to improve the writing process. And it actually starts to translate into some pretty profound improvements to the tool set that biologists are going to have. Um, and there's also been a big jump because pretty much everything in my past has been on detecting or reading biology. Within Scripta now, we're focused on writing biology writing the genome and writing single cells. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by writing? Yeah, um, I might even have to take a few steps back to kind of define why would you even want to write? If I maybe start with that first and then we can get into how our particular solution helps deliver on, on this first framing. Is that, again, a passion about biology. I believe biology has unlimited potential or positively change this world. We as a species have never had a technology with the potential of what biology can do to solve some of the largest problems facing us. However, that potential of biology is going to stay a potential unless we harness it by building better tools that can actually start to um, deliver on that potential. And I thought for a while in that 2016 timeframe, do I build another uh, company that reads biology better? And you could think through that process. Do you build a digital proteomics tool? Do you do a, you know, a digital multi-omics tool? What really is what biologists need? 
And personally, I thought it's not better reading tools, which are of value. And I am so glad that great companies like 10X will continue to deliver improvements. And many of the other startups that are out there um, improving our ability to read biology. You could have tried to do, you know, better, faster, cheaper on the reading. But there were other people, very capable people, working on precisely that. Yeah, and let's just fast forward to the end game there. If you had a perfect reading tool, are you done? That, to me, right, at least personally, the answer I said is no. Because why are we building all of this information? We're trying to read biology so that we can then use that information to go solve some problem with that information we just gained. And so I tried to think of a creative way to short-circuit jump to delivering a new tool set to biologists that solves really important problems would allow them to harness this power of biology, but not necessarily need to know all the mechanistic governing rules underneath biology to actually implement the solution. Because biology is so complex, we're not going to figure out the rules of biology in a short period of time. Centuries from now, maybe. But on the immediate horizon, It's going to be a very long time till we a priori know what to make, what type of cell or genome to construct to solve a variety of different applications across a variety of different markets. So I wanted to try to tackle that bigger challenge of creating a ubiquitous platform that would allow people to write large libraries of cells in ways that they could use those large libraries of cells to, in a way, empirically just follow the data and find the cell that has the right phenotype or the right property that they initially wanted to go. Okay, let's come back to the the technology in a second. But it's 2016. Uh, What's going on in the wider world? Uh, CRISPR was all over the news. It was wildfire uh, spreading around academia, the ability to edit genomes. And uh, this company, Inscripta, had been around for a while. You didn't found this one. Um, how did how did you end up coming to work there, coming to join them as CEO? Yeah, great, great question. And I did not know this word kismet, but my now general counsel, uh, Diana DeVore, uh, taught me that word as I was describing the story to her. So I'll set it up that way. So after 10X, I'm sitting in the exact same garage that we started 10X doing those architectures, and I'm literally on the same whiteboard starting to war game what I want to do next. And I'm taking myself on this thought process. It's not about reading. you got to get to uh, writing biology. And as I'm thinking uh, how to deliver a single-cell writing platform, I get reached out by like, eight people within one week that are talking about this company. It wasn't called Inscript at the time. It was called MuseBio. So a few venture capitalists, a few outside consultants I worked with, some people back at Stanford, some subcontractors from my previous companies all reached out. At the same time, a headhunter said, hey, we're looking for a CEO to take over this company. And they were exactly aligned with some key IP that I thought we needed for me to deliver on this vision that I'm assembling on this whiteboard. And so within this like, you know, 
it literally was less than a week. It was like three, four days. You know, I don't even hear about big companies that many times within that tight of a window, let alone this tiny startup, you know, 10 people in Boulder, Colorado of all places. And it's in Boulder because they had some key IP coming out of CU. So I flew out there, gave them the pitch of what I was thinking, heard their pitch. And I think we saw that we could really merge these two ideas um, together to build something really special. And that became the next sprint of my life. Makes you sound like it, it was a match made in heaven or something. <laughs> it, it really was. It even goes full circle. Um, if you go back to Livermore 2008, uh, quant formation of Quantalife, the key business partners and business advisors that when we started that, that company, um, they actually are from Boulder, Colorado. So from 2008 on, this gentleman, Mike Manise, another key mentor and person who's helped uh, uh, drive my life and help make, uh, help drive a lot of the successes that I've been a part of. He's been teasing me about Boulder and kind of saying, you're going to end up there. You're going to end up there for the last 10 years. And the fact that it actually happened is pretty cool. Well, I want to ask you about Boulder in a second, um, but... In, it, it became Inscripta, the, the company. What did it have at that point? Did it have an instrument and some software and some reagents? Or did, did, did you and others really have to like pull the whole thing together? It was very early stage. We had to pull the, the whole thing together. We had an academic publication that showed there's a direction of a chemistry um, but we've since had to really productize the entire system, instruments, software, consumables, reagents, and even had to go in and develop new custom enzymes with specific properties and features that we needed um, for this to work. So I am, I am deeply proud and honored uh, to be part of the team that we've assembled here at Inscripta. I've been part of some great successes and great teams, and they are helped and they are the reason why those previous companies were successful. Now, briefly, you mentioned enzymes. You guys developed your own custom CRISPR nuclease. You call it MAD7, and this is inspired by Madagascar. What, what's the story there? To deliver these tools, you have to have the best data for them to really to be taken up by customers. Within this biospace, to have the best data, you really have to have the best kind of assays, architecture, the, the reagent configuration. And at the heart of that are the enzymes. So it was a firm commitment, right, when I got involved to start a large enzyme engineering effort to deliver um, best-in-class enzyme properties. It just so happens during the development of that, we also came up with um, enzymes that were novel and would help give our customers that would use our gene editing systems confidence that they can work with our reagents because there's so much complexity on the patent space when you look at CRISPR. But the focus was initially performance improvements and we got benefits by finding our own unique enzymes. Reason why they're called Madzymes is the internal code name for the program was Madagascar really inspired by the diversity of biology. Now, what was special about the, these enzymes? What, what properties did they have that were more attractive than whatever you could get in the academic community? So we've actually since filed, um, uh, went to the U.S. Patent Office with these enzymes. And, you know, I can speak to freedom to operate and all the complexities 
around there, but it's best just to let the patent office speak for us. They actually granted us um, patents on the use of these enzymes in our editing systems. So that's one really key advantage is that it gives customers you know, confidence that they can use these, these platforms. And you're giving them away, I've noticed, which um, is a good way to get people to try it, play around with it, see for yourself, which yes. might be a good a thing to have in the bank later down the road when you try to commercialize an instrument. <laughs> yeah, and one of the one of the thoughts there, and I'll get back to some of the other properties that you'd asked, is we firmly believe in this idea that bioeconomy and what uh, gene editing and genome engineering can do for society. But the tools really are not um, up to the right level for the community to deliver on that bioeconomy. And we can come back to some of the deficiencies, but one is access to these, these tools. And we heard a lot about great ideas that were just standing on the sidelines because they couldn't absorb the large double-digit royalties, or potentially there was already exclusive fields given out where they just couldn't get access to these molecular scissors or enzymes. And we knew we were building this uh, benchtop digital genome engineering platform that later the more genome editors and genome engineers that there are, there'd be more customers that we could sell our platform to later. So that was one of the calculus back in 2007 when we decided to give away the MAD7 enzyme out into the marketplace for free which many people didn't really believe um, was actually free, but since have, have used it, adopted that, and we're seeing widespread uptake at all levels from billion-dollar multinationals all the way to key startups that say, hey, if you didn't give us access to this, we couldn't be doing business. Okay, so you ship out the enzymes. That um, is good for science. It, it also builds up some goodwill reservoir, uh, gives people confidence that um, at least one piece of your technology um, is is Works. reliable. Yep. Um, but tell me about, like, as an engineer, um, you're thinking about the big picture here. What are the parameters, the properties that you want yep. for this digital benchtop um, genome engineering instrument? Yeah, so our game, big picture, was to never just kind of cut the genome with this CRISPR nuclease and allow some indel to form to knock out a gene. That really is not going to give researchers the full capabilities they need to, again, harness the power of biology to go after novel applications and therapeutics and energy and materials and food, you know, broad swaths of the global economy. To do that, you need to have really the capability to insert, delete, swap sequences. And because you honestly don't know what to make, again, across all those diverse applications, you need to be able to make a lot of them and you need to go to all spots of the genome. You can't just do coding, got to do non-coding. We really need to build a tool that could explore the full richness of the genome. So what you need there is the ability to truly match the kinetics of all the cutting and the pasting, the repairing. So you could change the DNA sequence at a very targeted spot, but you also needed to, to do it in a highly multiplexed manner where you could start to parallelize your experimentation. Again, get more shots on goal, more chances of finding the cell with the right phenotype. And as we started to build this vision, we couldn't do it just with a single enzyme. We had to come up with our own chemistry 
And we couldn't do it just with a reagent. We also had to deliver custom microfluidic modules that were more efficient in handling the cells. And as we got more and more of those components, we realized assembling that into an instrument with this unique chemistry, plus a software uh, framework that helped customers uh, come into using biology, even though they might not know exactly what to do, was necessary. So this became a a much larger scope over time than any of us thought at the beginning to really pull this off. You want to make it simple and user-friendly. If you don't, then you're going to get a bunch of variability across the global research community. If you go back to two platforms I've made, there was an essential single button on each of those platforms. And that was um, by design. It was very easy to make something with a lot of buttons, but it's very hard to make something with one button. And that same mindset to make this easy for biologists who are not skilled in CRISPR genome editing or engineering, but to still be able to come into the Inscripta portfolio and start to use the power of gene editing and genome engineering for their business and their applications is one of the main focuses. Now, to be widely adopted as well, you got to have something that's cost-effective, cost-efficient. Uh, what, what kind of... Um prices can you uh, were you shooting for and where are you at now yeah so if, if you kind of even step a one step back think about where the world's at today um, it's an exciting time as you jump from genome reading which i've been in my life and by building tools to read read biology to now writing biology what you're starting to see is the formation of almost what is like the first supercomputer equivalent biological supercomputer in these big biofoundries they're popping up on the academic institutions throughout the nation with probably um, you know uh, chris voigt at the broad has a, has a large one on the east coast uh jay keesling at jay bay uh, on the West Coast and many other within academic institutions throughout the nation. Plus, you're seeing companies like Ginkgo and Zymergen, multi-billion-dollar valuations, raising you know four two hundred seventy-five million dollar, four hundred million dollar Series Ds. And think about these amazing places. Um, these are seventy thousand square foot manufacturing floors filled with large automation and robotic plate handling infrastructure to move more and more cell biology experiments through the system. So, in terms of cost, you can think of you know making a supercomputer biofoundry is really the state of the system. And you can almost take yourself back forty years, probably what it was like to see the emergence of the first supercomputers uh, of our own day. Those places that you mention in academia in particular, I mean, writing of the DNA is a piece of the puzzle. It, it goes hand in glove with, you know, high throughput uh, sequencing, the reading, reading and writing together, right? In some kind of seamless ballet. It's not just writing DNA. That was also one of the things, if you go back to the garage formation for Inscripta for myself, I was thinking, okay, jumping to writing but writing DNA is not enough because what are, what are you going to want to do? You're going to want to take that DNA once you wrote it and boot it up into a cell. Okay. Then I made the simple connection. If you write just one cell, that's probably not enough because you're going to get it wrong because systems biology is not really there to guide us to say what to make. So you got to write many cells in parallel. And that's what Inscript is going after. But to complete this, this supercomputer analogy, if you think about it and your question on price, um, not everyone could afford making a giant biofoundry 
or have access to that. And those businesses are scaling and growing and they're going to have limitations because there's going to be more customers than they're able to put through their system. So we recognize that what we wanted to do is really help um, democratize the access to this amazing technology and power, almost move from a centralized to decentralized business model. And it's not competitive with the supercomputer, the Ginkgo's Imergens, because we want to help build better equipment for their manufacturing floors to help them even supercharge their own capabilities. Yeah, I get it. So this is a this is the razor razor blade business model. You sell the instrument uh, plus the consumables on a regular basis, the reagents and all that. You know, Illumina and others have done that. Works really well. Yeah, and so that 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 uh, center the decentralization of access to genome engineering at the scale that we do in these push button systems is what our vision was. We built it and we just launched it at SynBioBeta, one of the largest synthetic biology conferences and have had overwhelming response from customers. Well, now let's talk real real briefly about, you know, your vision for the applications and then we'll get into the customers and what they're doing. Um, it, you you say on your LinkedIn page that, you know, your, your mission is to uh, develop these technologies to revolutionize how we feed fuel and heal humanity that sounds almost exactly like the biotechnology the whole industry of biotech it's agriculture energy and medicine that's really broad and ambitious why why cast such a wide net because biology can deliver on that wide net and, and you can get caught in a, in a trap here a bit as you, as you describe the amazing breadth of what biology can solve across therapeutics and diagnostics and energy and novel materials and food. And it gets exciting, okay? But you then somewhat can almost sound foolish because people in the know will go, you can never make a system that actually impacts that many diverse markets and applications. Got to focus somewhere. How do you recognize that, that dichotomy? So what we've done here at Inscripta is take a lot of those diverse market segments, global market segments, and try to say we're going to focus on how biology can impact. So we know we're going to work with groups that have a biology component. So what is the key choke point in all those biological R&D programs? What's one platform we could make that could aid all of them? And that's when we recognize making this single platform to standardize the way the world gets libraries of cells as a key choke point that any bioeconomy, any solution of biology solving some problem is going to need to go through. So that's how we start standardizing the ability to hit these diverse markets is focusing on the cell. And really no one's made a platform that can produce libraries of cells with the precision control that we have. And that ultimately became our focus and then doing it in a manner that you could distribute access to this platform was the added challenge. Okay, so you had some early access customers. I noticed in your press release at the launch at SynBioBeta last October in San Francisco, you had Jim Collins of MIT quoted in your press release. Now that gets my attention and a lot of people's because that's uh, you know, he's one of the leading biologists. What was the key question that he was trying to answer and that you were able to help him with? Yeah, uh, we're very blessed to have people like uh, Jim Collins working on this. Uh, for those that don't know him, he actually uh, many uh, ascribes one of the founding fathers of the synthetic biology field. I believe he was the first to actually coin synthetic biology. You know, going back to to that stage, um, 
he was giving a keynote actually at Symbiobeta. And at the end of his Symbiobeta talk, that would probably be two-ish years ago, I walked up to him and just said, we need to talk. I want to show you something that we have an idea that we're building. It's not ready yet for prime time, but we're going in this direction. When we are ready, would you like to um, use it? And, and do you think we're on to something here? He said, absolutely. I'd like to use it right now. We weren't ready. We kept the relationship warm. And when we were ready, reached back out to him. He was a little skeptical to the scale at which we could write. And so we did an initial pilot study um, where he was focusing on looking at, in a way, fighting superbugs, especially relevant with some of the pathogens that we're, fight, we're dealing with today in the coronavirus. Um, but as opposed to a virus, it was thinking about some of the antibiotic resistance um, uh, challenges that our society is going to face in the coming years. And so what Jim wanted to do is do a large scale screen to identify future think of like hotspots or emerging resistance uh, locations or markers. And we made a very large library for him precisely so that he could start to develop uh, really novel therapeutics. And it goes even farther to where he'd love to understand all the resistance markers that he could apply combination therapies. So like drug cocktails, but where each drug is at a low titer to not knock down the natural flora of the patient, thus much healthier and safer for us, but have a wide net covered to deal with the uh, uh, infections that we could face, plus cover the future resistance markers that would pop up and make that particular antibiotic treatment no longer effective. So this is one of these grand challenges for our society. And so he threw, um, in the first pilot study, we overwhelmingly kind of hit that out of the park. He's been pleased. And we're now in much deeper, larger scale studies where we're kind of throwing the kitchen sink at it because now he can make libraries and he can target spots of the genome and ask questions that he could just physically never do before. Okay. So that's one of your early access customers. You decide last fall, I think it was October, just six months ago, to actually roll this out for commercial customers. So I'll come back to that question about the price. What's this going to cost? So just, to, yeah, and I didn't resolve it. So I, I set up the, the biofoundry frame. We wanted to make the actual instrument affordable. So we said 347K for the actual instrument. And then the reagents themselves really depend upon the type of library that they're ordering. It is going to be cost effective. We've had very large interest in our early access program. And it's hard to give an exact number because there's so many different types of libraries that we could make. But they'd be in the few K range up to $15,000, depending upon what they're ordering. And that's per, per experiment, per run? Yeah, per experiment. Okay. And how's the launch gone for the first six months? Truthfully, you build these companies from the beginning and for three years, you have a hope that you built the right thing. And as you get closer to that launch, it's nervous. And even with Quantalife success, we were nervous. And even 10X, which is an amazing platform, we were nervous and wondering what the uptake would be. Those were great successes, large uptake. What we're experiencing so far at Inscripta is even larger than my experience there. So that is a wonderful first leading indicator that we are onto something pretty special here. Now, with that said, you know, Inscripta is coming out of stealth mode. 
Um, not everyone understands it, and we need to move past those first KOLs and early adopters that will most likely, you know, almost always try the new thing. Can you give me a sense of what your installed base looks like? So we have been taking orders. We have those in. We are shipping the instrument. Uh, we said the first half of this year, so it's basically uh, imminent. And no to the exact answer because I can tell you it's zero because we haven't shipped one yet. Okay, but you have orders. Yeah. Oh, yes. Definitely interest here. And we actually did one of the largest early access and beta programs that I've been a part of with top people like Jim Collins and Chris Voigt and Jay Keesling. Um, so we have some pretty exciting programs and you'll start to see the publications come out um, in this year of the, the work that we've been doing through that early access partnership. And these, com- these early access customers include people in medicine, ag, energy, all of the above? We've had interest across the board, large segments. Uh, unfortunately, we've had to say no to a lot of people so we could focus um, on the, the first batch. And we want to make sure that the initial kind of market entry beachheads are overwhelmingly supported. Microbes, mammalian, ag, uh, there's interest across the board, but we're focusing this first platform launch on microbes, specifically E. coli and yeast. But it is our mission to continue to deliver the right tools for the marketplace. And you'll see expansion into those other cell adjacencies. So microbes, microbiome type drug developers might be a good place to start. They are keenly interested in this platform. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Boulder earlier. Okay. This is a little off the technology. Uh, why? I, I know that you had some technology coming out of CU and that's kind of the genesis of the company, but you know, companies can move anywhere at any point and you had a long history in the Bay area. Uh, why stay and build in Boulder? Great question. And I didn't know that we would when we first took over. So as I talked to the initial team, one of the first questions they said is, if you're going to come here and take this over, we want to give it a chance in Boulder first. You got to promise that. And I said, yes. And so as we started to move forward, I said I was going to take over. I started lining up the um, initial investment from Benrock, one of the top VCs in the whole Silicon Valley. We actually went back to the company and said, all right, we'll do this, but we're going to give it six months. And if we can't scale fast enough um, like we could on the coasts, and we know what companies do there, then we're going to move it. Team said, okay. And you see, we've kept here. I will tell you, I have personally fallen in love with Boulder. I love this location. And if I, if I die in Boulder and establish roots the rest of my life, I'll be a happy man. I see why Mike Manise has been talking about this place um, for the last decade. It really is a secret special spot. And actually, it's been an asset. It's been an asset because we get to pull in world-class talent. And I've noticed that there's just people that are on the coasts that are frustrated with the grind and just kind of the, the approach that's there and are looking for something different. And if I had a company only in the Bay Area, they've told me they wouldn't have made a lateral switch. But what we've done here is not focus only on Boulder. We're actually a two-state company and at three sites We have a location in San Diego, a location in the Bay Area, and a location in Boulder. And it is literally pedal to the metal acceleration on all three of those fronts. So what's happening is I'm actually getting the ability to recruit and grow from the coast, 
from the biotech hubs of San Diego and the Bay Area, but also have kind of a monopoly of pretty much the middle 3,000 plus miles of the country. There's nothing like what we have. And in those 3,000 miles, I will definitively argue Boulder is the spot. How many employees do you have total now? Uh, we are over 125. And uh, Boulder, um, are, are you an outdoors person? I'm sure that's part of the draw for a lot of the people. Early on in the class, there was this uh, skateboarder. Yes, um, I'm an outdoors person. I used to love to snowboard. The real answer is I work too much. <laughs> so I am pretty much in a building all the time. So I get to see the beautiful, beautiful nature of the mountains and the fact that they're there, I love. But again, I, I, I love what I do. And uh, working, is, working is not working. I, I like building companies and um, being with my family and there's no real time left to be outside. Do you find that you're able to benefit from some of the, the growing pains of the Bay Area? You know, the cost, the traffic, the housing, all of that. That's part of what you mentioned, the grind. That's part of what some people are looking for with Boulder? Definitively, yes. There are, there are people that are reaching out that are looking for something different, but still want to work on world-class science problems. And there is no problem larger in biological science right now than what Inscripta is trying to tackle. Well, I, uh, I wish you guys well, and I hope that you are a, a big success for Boulder and the Colorado economy. Kevin Ness, thanks for joining me on The Long Run. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.